couldn't take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cat's Whiskers. Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth. Thanks for joining the Cat's Whiskers team once again. This week we step well back into the Geelong Football Club's history to speak with first rover of the triumphant 1963 Premiership team, Bill Goggin. It's great to have you listening, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM 91.3 in Perth. If you're listening in Western Australia, I'm certain you'll love hearing what Bill Goggin has to say about famed footy legend and former teammate, Holly Farmer. With Megan Holtz joining us later, let's welcome the panel of Gus Marini, Mark Brunger and Anthony Petkovic on the back of Geelong's defeat at the hands of Port Adelaide. Port Adelaide 9-4-58, defeating Geelong 5-12-42. Mark Brunger, very disappointing game there for the Cats. Yes, Wes, I would suggest that listeners should adjust their safety belts as we speak because this could be quite a bumpy ride. Um, Bruise-free football will not win new finals games. Neither will passengers. There was more passengers in the Geelong side tonight than there were on the SS Titanic. It was just a litany of players who may not have even bothered running down the race to come out into the ground because they were just spectators. Jack Henry. Luke Dalhouse, Sam Menegola, Brendan Parfitt, Tom Atkins, Cam Guthrie, Gary Rowan, Mitch Duncan, SOS, where were you boys? You went missing in action. Bombing long, panicking, poor disposals, under constant pressure, bad kicking, bad football. Geelong were destroyed in the middle. Couldn't get anything out of the middle. And then with seven minutes to go, we're 10 points down or seven points uh, seven points down with 10 minutes to go. And who do we put into the centre? We put our three least experienced centre players into the centre for the centre bounce instead of putting our three best in there, Dangerfield, Selwood and Cam Guthrie. I think it's about time that we applied the acid to head coach Chris Scott 
he has a deplorable finals record. And whilst he isn't out there on the ground, kicking, marking, handballing, he is in control of the game plan. He is in control of the the, uh, the mental side of the game in making sure his players are right. He is one game away from cleaning out his desk drawer, in my opinion, because Geelong fans cannot tolerate this any longer. This poor, poor, poor finals performances of the Cats and another straight sets exit from finals looms. And if it does, Chris Scott, thanks for the memories. It's time to move on. What are your thoughts, Anthony? Oh, I think Mark, Mark has a point, has several points. But we shouldn't be too upset. We got probably exactly what we expected. No, we got exactly what we feared. And that was that certain Geelong players would be unable to carry their excellent regular season form into the finals. We saw that tonight again. Gary Rowan, Lou Dalhouse, Mitch Duncan, Mitch Duncan, Mitch Duncan. It's happening too often. The same faces pull the same stunt come September. When Lockie Henderson is your best player on the ground, you are in serious, serious trouble. And of course, we got exactly what we can expect sometimes of Chris Scott in action. Well, Gus, I dare say that you probably have a, a fair level of agreement there with Anthony in terms of the questionable plan B employed by the Cats coach. Oh, yeah, pretty much. Um, and I think the boys summed it up beautifully. But I heard off the great Dermot Burden. And this is a guy who we all know has got probably arguably the best finals experience in the history of the game. He said, players get you into finals. Coaches win you the premiership. Now, if we hear that off a guy on the street. We probably don't, we take it with a grain of salt. When you hear it from guys like Dermot Burden, as others have said it too, then you've got to look into that. And so every year we say the same thing, great home and away uh, performance. Sometimes we finish on top. Almost, we can't win a qualifying final to, to save ourselves. And it's just this thing where um, it's the same old, same old. Now, Chris Scott has a lot to answer for. I don't think he'll be sacked. He's got another year to run on his contract. He, um, even if they go out in straight sets, uh, I would like that to be the case, as Mark mentioned, but he, he took a pay cut this year. He's done all the right things, and he's, and he's obviously a very decent man. But Geelong, Mark's right. Geelong supporters have had enough. It's enough now. Because if you look at the last nine weeks, take away two of those weeks, seven of those nine weeks, we're playing what we was described as a premiership favouritism football. And why you cannot bring that to, to a final is, it's, it's beyond, it's beggar's belief. So I think Geelong are really on the back foot for next week. I think whoever wins out of Collingwood or West Coast mentally goes into that game in a lot better condition than Geelong. And I'm just really, I really hope it's not a, straight sets exit but and they can revive this season that, that they've put so much effort into i really hope they do west but we'll have to wait and see yes yeah, sobering start to the cat's whiskers podcast for this week but what i can promise our very faithful listeners is that it does get better with uh, our opportunity to catch up with 1963 premiership player and former coach of the club 
in Billy Goggin. He is coming up next. Recruited from North Geelong, Bill Goggin developed into one of the Cats' greatest ever players, chalking up 248 games in the blue and white. A dual best and fairest winner, he was also a premiership player and captain of the club for 84 games. Bill Goggin's commitment to Geelong far exceeded his illustrious playing career as he also coached the club from 1980 to 82, following a little over two years at the helm of Footscray and premiership success in the VFA with Geelong West. Selected in Geelong's Team of the Century, Bill Goggin is a member of the AFL's Hall of Fame, also coaching Victoria in State of Origin football from 1989 to 1993. It is an absolute delight to have Bill Goggin on this week's podcast, and he starts us off by going all the way back to the start of his career, recalling his first game for the Cats. My first game was against South Melbourne at the uh, Lakeside Oval, and I played in a half-board flank, but there's a fellow playing for... South Melbourne in, in, in the side and they beat us quite easily and the fellow that was playing for South Melbourne was Bob School. So we both played the same, uh, played the first game yeah, against one another and he was in the seniors in, uh, in about five, five games time, it took me two years <laughs> and he won three bandlers. He, he, he was magic on that day too as well. Yeah, the signs were there early. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, left and right for Bill and Polly Farmer were two of the greatest ever, two of the greatest ever for Geelong, and they had a tremendous relationship on the field. No doubt you'll enjoy hearing his recollections of his time with Polly as a person and a teammate. We were friends off the ground, but we didn't go to each other's house. But we used to meet each other around the town and, and sit down and have a talk. Didn't talk much about footy and uh, sometimes we would go to the, the races together. He had a car, I didn't, so I used to get a ride. They used to pick me up from work and we used to go to the races and go to Tyneton or even as far as Bendigo sometimes, but not on training days. We're up to Ballarat. Yeah, we got on yeah, really well and we went away in state games together. We used to share the rooms together. Um, yeah, he was. He was. He wasn't just a an outstanding footballer. He was a outstanding person too. He's a lovely person. He he was. He was kind to everyone except when it came to football. <laughs> was that a white line fever thing, or oh, do you think he was? Um... I think just the way he summed it up. The way, like most most things, the um, only time I see him get excited was or get upset was when he. When he was coaching, he didn't sort of, yeah, other than that, um, he used to, uh, well, he protected me as well, I reckon, when I was playing because he used to hit them hard, like the Ruckman. I've seen Ruckman play against him and our really good players, at the end of the day, they wouldn't go up with him. They'd had enough. (laughs) He'd jump into them all the time. Yeah, and it... He um, he also was extremely strong, and he used to, he used to go to uh, most professional players there's ever been. I he, he used to do weights down at uh, weight circuits down at Tom Tresizer's place in Fine Street. Yeah, he'd do a light workout on Friday afternoon before the and 
and he would do a workout on Sunday morning, and he would, they would probably be, uh, the game would be over and we'd go down for a drink or whatever it may be, we'd look for Polly, he'd be there one minute, next minute he's gone, he'd be home having tea by seven o'clock or half past six, and, and yeah, that's, how, that's how, how he was with his football, but he, he was um, nice to people, he was kind to people, and he never treated anyone any differently to what they thought they might have been. <laughs> he treated them, yeah. Uh, so was there a special understanding between you and him when it came to stoppages or do you think that was something that you worked on strategically during the week or do you think there was just an understanding between you and him? Well I was getting the benefit so I think I, I developed the understanding. Yeah. Um, but he, but, he, but he, he, was, he, was, he was in tune into that but, it, but I suppose we had it difficult for the opposition because we never spoke on the ground. Just nod. We'd nod. Yeah. That was there, there, yeah, yeah. And I knew exactly how far he would hit the ball yeah. and where it hit it. And he was a, which was strange, he was a left-hander, which was unusual. It took me a little while to work that out because he hit it to a different position. Because yeah. left-handers get up and they hit it where the right-hander hits it over that way. So it, it, it was um, it's something, yeah, it, we developed that was sort of a, uh, uh, probably sensitive. Yeah. And that was, that's, you just need a little bit of a, an edge somewhere, and that's, yeah. that's what it was, I suppose. The superstar full forward at the time for the Cats was none other than Doug Wade. And whilst Doug ended up kicking more than a thousand goals in his illustrious career, he can thank the likes of Polly Farmer and Bill Goggin, especially Bill Goggin's exceptional delivery, lace out to Doug Wade on many occasions at Cadenia Park and other venues. It was Goggin's pace and class running out of the centre that enabled Wade to kick as many goals as he did in his illustrious career. Yes, we. I did. Yeah, Doug was. Doug had a good understanding. Um, we used to. He used to lead out at. Um, lead out at. Um, from the from the square. But we we some we quite often we'd practice that. During the week, and I'd know at what pace he would lead, which means I knew where to kick it to. It, it wasn't wasn't sort of at him it was where he was going to be and, and, I, and I also didn't I don't think I didn't kick the ball unless sometimes I did real hard because he could run into it and get it um, yeah and he and yeah yeah now he he was a smart very smart footballer and I, and, and I knew where he I knew where he, he was going to be most times yeah but he, and uh, he was, yeah, he, he, was a great, he was a great player, he was a great full forward. After the disappointment of being knocked out of the preliminary final by Carlton in 1962, the 63 season was a ding-dong battle between Hawthorne and Geelong. Both finished on, on, with 13 wins and a draw, and it was the Cats who made their grand final in 63, and Bill talks about that day in full detail. It was on the cars that we were, we were, we were on the way up. Yeah. Because that, the year before that, we played the, in the finals. We hadn't played in finals for many years before that. But uh, yeah, so uh, but we had to win in '63 for us to get in the finals. 
where they're going to finish second or fifth. Fifth made in the finals. And we had to play Hawthorne at Hawthorne, which was the team we met in the finals. So you'd expect Hawthorne to beat us at Hawthorne, but we beat them. And sort of touch and go three quarter time, and then a couple of us got going and beat them quite, quite easily. Um, yeah, John Cherry kicked a couple of goals, I think. Yeah, yeah. So you've got a good memory. So, you remember oh yeah, I remember it. That's good. And, and uh, <coughs> I remember playing in that game, and uh, as a, the coach for Hawthorne was John Kennedy, senior, and uh, he used to stand on a an old cement, I don't know, it must have been electricity box or something, stand on top of that with his overcoat on. We're getting the, the, the throw in on the uh, on the boundary line where he was on the wing, and uh, I looked up. I could hear him say, "Get him, get him, get him!" And I looked up at him, and he said, "Yes, you." <laughs> I just <laughs> I just laughed. <laughs> I was working out at the International Harvest then, and uh, you know I used to catch the bus down to the ground, I, I, and. Uh, I remember him telling me uh, at, at the National Harvest on the Friday, he said to me, because uh, there were quite a few fellows out there barracking for us, and they said that, uh, make sure you're here on Monday, he said, otherwise you don't get your bonus. <laughs> and I was there on the Monday. It was a, it was a warm day, and uh, I remember we were on the bus, we sort of, I think we were a little bit awestruck <laughs> in, 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 a, in a way. We played, we were fairly quiet on the bus. We had a walk through Werribee, which was normal, um, but we were sort of pretty subdued and, and quiet. And uh, we got off and there was quite a, quite a big crowd there, you know, where the bus was. And yeah, it was just, yeah, a little, little bit overwhelming to be quite honest, it was. We, yeah, and. Uh, we went inside and there's a chap in there who was on, used to be on TV and he was sort of playing the piano accordion yep. <laughs> as Happy Hammond. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, anyway, and, yeah, and, uh, and uh, I, uh, oops, oh, you know, what do you do? Look at each other, quiet, get your boots on. Yeah. I remember getting a rub down off the, the trainer and uh, my brother came in who had, was, had been gone to coach Kahuna and he just came in and, and, and he was, I could see he was upset because he, he thought he should have been there, and, uh, which he should have been, and uh, you know, he wished us the best of luck and, and yeah, that's about all I can remember and going out and yeah, a big crowd was out there and sort of going around the wing and sort of lifted us. Yeah, but really, the, uh, we'd had that experience from the year before where the uh, weren't quite ready for it. I didn't think because um, Carlton whacked a few of us early. Uh, I think Ian Collins was the one that got me, but the ball was bounced and bang in the head. But so this time we were ready. We, we jumped into Hawthorne pretty hard and we went yeah. We, we forgot everything about playing the game. Just play the game, and, and into it, and, and get into it hard. Because if they don't get 
if you don't get them, they'll get you. <laughs> the end, as we, when, I mean, we're three quarter time, we're eight points or so, I don't know what we were, we weren't very far in front, but we, but Polly dominated the ruck and he grabbed it, I think he hand passed to me once and he gave uh, out to Gordon Hines and uh, I remember Fred Buller, who was sent, uh, captain, said I thought, I remember him playing extremely well. I remember, and I remember Ken Goodlands, he came on the ground, he replaced Peter Walker at centre-half back and uh, Peter had to go off because he was injured and Ken Goodlands, who was a 19th man, came on and he played extremely well too and uh, yeah, he was he was a um, very good athlete, Ken Goodlands. He was in Harry Hopman's uh, tennis squad and he was a pretty big fella. And uh, that seemed to, yeah, so he played well, yeah. And Roy West marked a lot at fullback. Yeah, most of it, and I remember some of these fellows are already passed on. Ken Goodlands has. Terrible. And Hugh Routley just died two days ago. And I remember Hugh Routley, who was sort of on the fringe as to being how well, you wouldn't expect him to be a dominant player in the, in the, in, on the wing. And... Uh, I reckon he played, his, he's a very good player, but the fellow on him was called Cole Uren, who, who was a very good, he was one of Hawthorne's better players, yeah. and um, and uh, he, uh, he, uh, he he dominated Uren, he played extremely well, the best game he'd ever played, I, I believe, <laughs> was in the grand final, which is something he should be, he was proud of, and uh, Alistair Lord was very good. Stuart Lord was good. Actually, in fact, we Gordon, we didn't have any players that didn't pull their weight. We had a pretty even side, with probably Polly being the dominant player. The end of 1975, there was an expectation that Bill Goggin might be the next coach of Geelong, taking over from Polly Farmer. But it wasn't to be. Bill found himself coaching the Bulldogs and heading down the road to Footscray. They came down and I thought, I'd, yeah, well, they came down and and uh, offered me money and the promise of things to, they were going to be successful and, um, and I asked some people and I really, if I was asking people I, I really didn't want to go because <laughs> I was a Geelong person, like from the, my brother, my friend, right through. Um, um, and I finished up going but uh, yeah, it, 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 yeah, and it was because I was living in Geelong, going back and forth. It was hard. Like I love some of the players there. The good people that have been around Footscray. Some I met some lovely people, but it was hard work. It's too hard because I was yeah. It's too hard. I, 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 yeah, yeah. The money wasn't worth it. I, I, I don't know what I, I should have stayed at West because yeah. it, it, it was similar money, so I should have stayed at West. While Bill's time at Footscray was relatively brief, he did provide them with one gift that kept on giving, and that was Geelong Ruckman Ian Bluey Hampshire, who not only stayed and became a great player at the Dogs himself, he went on to coach the club in the 1980s. He was a very good Ruckman, Ian Hampshire, and he, he developed. He could develop a team in the players, like 
they liked him, he, he, he assisted them, he would tap ons and all that sort of thing. He was, and he was a big fella. And he, and he, and he, and, he, and, uh, and, and Footscray really liked him. Yeah. Where, and, and he would, he learned off Polly. He, he knew where to tap it, he hit, hit it to, to advantage of, the, of his teammates. But where we had uh, Gary Dempsey, who was a very good player as well, but Gary would hit the ball where he wanted to all the time and, and a long way, which was, it's not the answer because the opposition get in between. So, Louis Hampshire was probably a better ruckman to his teammates than Gary Dempsey was. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but, but Gary was certainly an outstanding player. But, yeah, no, we, we did pretty well. And, and Ian Hampshire played very well there too. He played, he did play well, yeah. While Bill had some initial success with the Bulldogs, guiding to the finals in 1976, his stay was all too brief, resigning after the opening round of the 1978 season, and it all centred around one player. Bernie Quinlan. Okay. And he, um, yeah, they, <laughs> and, yeah, it's a long story, but the thing is, he, they said that they, would, they wouldn't clear him, right? And I was up in, I was, I was up in Maribara. Uh, at the time, having lunch up there for, for to do with the sports stores, and uh, they rang up to say they're going to clear Bernie Quinlan. So I went down that night and said, "No, that's it. You promised me you wouldn't clear him." And it was, it was only for it was only for small money. Like it was just difficult because the club was sort of split. One thing, one person's telling you one thing, another one's telling you another thing. I didn't like it because there's too many, too divided, and too. Yeah, too divided, and rather than being together, yeah, one person's telling you one thing, and then he walk, you walk away, and as they tell you what a person he, a bad person he is, like those sort of things. I probably shouldn't shouldn't have listened, but the thing is, um, Clare and Bernie was, was wasn't wasn't going to save the club. It was going to ruin the club, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think I was. And they, I think right. they did that with a few players. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And the funny thing is, when I resigned, they uh, they uh, didn't clear him, but they cleared him about six weeks later. And the date on the cheque from Fitzroy was the day that I resigned. They held the cheque. They held the cheque. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. They didn't write another cheque. They just had that cheque. Well, those of us who recall State of Origin footy still have a strong fire burning for it, even today. Well, Bill coached the Big V seven times and no doubt enjoyed having the best players at his disposal, but also being able to teach them things that they could take back to their respective clubs. When you get into that, up that high, they're all greats because they are very, very good. But I, yeah, it was a, it was a, I was very proud of getting appointed there. That was, I think I did it for seven years which was a long time. I suppose the most outstanding game was when we played South Australia at the MCG and there was over 100,000 there. Yeah, 89, yeah, yeah, and Geelong was doing well too. Because yes. we had, um, I had, yeah, I had, uh, I think, uh, was Robert Scott, yep. and yeah, and I think I think Tim Darcy was made the sign that year. Made, yeah, uh, we had Gary Ayers, you know, great player, and, 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 
and Paul Roos. That, I mean, just talking to the cream of the cream, and they're easy to talk to. Yeah. And they, yeah, yeah. All you got to do is sort of, sort of get them to gel together, which fortunately it happened. They did, and uh, I introduced. That's what well, was introduced. The hit on the tap ons, the little hit, little bit. That's I introduced that to them. And they took them back to their clubs, and then suddenly their clubs were saying, "We've got this idea of <laughs> hit-ons and tap-ons, and yeah, yeah, just the one percenters." Yep. So that developed that in in in, in the system, um, and Collingwood, they what year they were in '91 or something? Ninety. Ninety, yeah. They reckon <laughs> I hear it back, but that they feel, felt that. McWan on the wing, yeah, I think Darren Malone played, I think, but they feel that they took that back to their club, which helped them. Bill touched there on the 1989 State of Origin versus South Australia at the MCG, and he had two of the greatest full forwards to play the game in Dunstall and Lockett at his disposal, which to the outsiders looking in caused concern that they'd get in each other's way. But that didn't really concern Bill. The two outstanding players on that day were, um, which we were a bit worried about. Because I remember we had a um, team meeting about, I don't know, about 12 o'clock or something, whatever, half past 11, and uh, and uh, we were worried about we're going to play Dunstall and Lockett together. Yep. They reckon they're going to run into each other and <laughs> they'll knock each other out. <laughs> I remember that. And uh, anyhow, I. Um, I remember I sent one of my friends up to Ballarat to Tony Lockett on the Saturday morning. I think it's a Saturday morning or the Friday night. I'm not sure. I've been Friday night with the instructions what I want him to do, just to be in there and uh, Jason Dunstall will be alongside him, but he won't be interfering with him. And he, and uh, and if you can't get the ball, go in the ruck and, and knock the ball down and, and just help the team. Once you say, as you say, they're talking about the upper, upper echelon, so their understanding of things was quite apparent. And Joseph Dunstall's probably the, him, him and Tony Lockett are probably the two best full forwards you'd ever, they're probably better ones, but I don't know, I don't know who they are. <laughs> but I mean, they were amazing, and uh, and uh, yeah, so, and, they, and they did gel together, and they, they blitzed, yeah, pretty hard to hold those two. <laughs> Both Billy Goggin and the great E.J. Witten formed a great partnership when it came to the Big V. But my spies tell me that in the beginning, they might not have exactly have been the best of buddies. We'd had a few run-ins. We just we didn't see eye to eye sometimes at, at Footscray. I suppose he was sort of thinking that maybe I'd done the wrong thing. Oh, and Teddy was... Oh, look, and the thing is, and then he, he coached uh, Williamstown. And I'd coached West and I'd give him a couple of floggings. <laughs> he wasn't happy. <laughs> and we just sort of started off at arm's length. But we finished up good mates. And I was so happy that I was so pleased that that's the way things happen and the way, uh, and, and yeah, and, uh, yeah, and I was lucky that he was the person he was too. He was, he was, he was, he was, he was wonderful. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, I'd played football in the state games with Teddy Whitten. 
when I was younger, and he was younger, and he was a great player, and he was strong. As I mentioned earlier, those of us that remember State of Origin remember it fondly, but does Billy think there's still a place for it in today's football scene? Yes, but I understand why. Yeah, yeah. Look, look state football, when I was in it and Teddy was in it, it was a, it was a privilege to be there and to be recognised as one of the better players. Yeah, it, it, yeah. but as things changed and the things become different because things move on, buildings change, towns change, it's changed, yeah. But we were lucky we had our time in that era. And, uh, yeah, and uh, it, uh, it's, uh, it, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, some, some like, like, yeah. I remember the last one, the, getting towards the end of it was, I think, with, when uh, Teddy Whitman come to me, I was at Geelong then, he said to me, I think they're about putting Ablett in, senior. I said, yeah. He said, what do you reckon? I said, he won't let you down. I said, he'd be good enough. Oh, he said, my head's on the block here, he said. <laughs> I said, it's always on there, I said. <laughs> but, oh, I don't know how many goals. He went out, we went, <coughs> and I was over there at the game, actually, and uh, Victoria played Western Australia at Subiaco Oval, and uh, Gary Ablett wasn't an established player at that stage. He was on his way, but he wasn't to where he was going to get. But uh, And I think he kicked on a half-forward flank, which is a pretty hard place to play. I don't know whether he kicked seven or nine goals. I'm not sure now. One or the other. And uh, he was, and he just, and he, he marked it. He, you know, he ran around. I mean, he just did everything. Yeah. And in my eyes, Teddy thought I was a hero. <laughs> Well, with all that Bill's achieved in the game, it was fascinating to hear what he had to say about one of his most memorable times with the football club. I've got, I've got a letter from the Geelong Football Club, which I can show you, which said I helped save the club in times when things weren't as good as what they are now. Because, yeah, because it was, it was difficult. Um, yeah, I've got a letter off the president because I, I think they, they voted me out. Of, someone got, someone's always going to get crooked on you somewhere along the way. <laughs> I don't know why, but then that's the way lay life is. Yeah, but seems to be, not always. But anyhow, uh, anyhow, so and I got voted off, and here I've saved the club. I got voted off, so that wasn't. But getting the letter was nice. Yeah, so that I wasn't forgotten and just. Yeah, and I, I, and, I, and I had worked um, really hard because in that time that I was football director, I recruited quite a lot of players. The two biggest named players that I recruited, and I, I recruited one of them, the other one I was in, part, part of it too, and that was in 84, I think. It was Gary Ablett Senior and Greg Williams. It came the same year. And I was, yeah, and no one's sort of, they've sort of pushed that away somewhere along the line. I don't know why. And I recruited, I don't know, I think I recruited 12 players my first year recruiting. Because I knew, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, like I had, um, 
I had um, Danny Frawley thrown at Geelong. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to hear from one of the absolute guns of the Geelong Football Club during the late 50s and early 60s to hear so many outstanding memories. Of course, coming up as the next part of our program is Gus Marini with Team Talk, Team of the Week, Captains Who Jumped Ship. Team Talk for this week, we feature captains who jump ship. And what that means exactly is players who captained their original VFL, AFL team and then moved on to another club. So we'll start with the back line where we see two-time Norm Smith medalist and four-time premiership player Luke Hodge, a full-back Paul Ruse, and in the other back pocket, Carl Dittrich. Anthony Pekovic, these are players from different eras, but pretty amazing backmen in their own right. Well, Carl Dittridge is a ruckman, but would easily slot in there in a back pocket to torment the resting ruckman in any game. Yes, if you were resting with Carl Dittridge, it wouldn't be much of a rest. You'd be pretty terrified going off the ball, I think. And Dittridge, of course, not only um, uh, at one point captained both clubs, St Kilda and Melbourne, and was a captain coach at Melbourne in his um, second time there, swapping back and forth between the two clubs. Paul Ruse's departure from Fitzroy was a tragedy for Fitzroy, but great for Sydney. And it was the beginning of the end, I think, for the Fitzroy Football Club in that particular form. And of course, Luke Hodge surprisingly extended his career after he appeared finished with the Hawks by going to Brisbane. And the half-back line contains... A Coleman medalist, and none other than the great Alex Jezelinko. Peter Moore finds himself at centre-half back. And Barry Davis, a premiership captain at North Melbourne, but it was originally a captain at Essendon. So, Mark Bronger, tell us a little bit about this half-back line. Well, I'll start with Barry Davis, Gus. And, of course, he, he came to North Melbourne uh, under the reign of uh, Ronald Dale Barassi when he basically walked over to North Melbourne and said... Uh, here's this 10-year rule in AFL, in VFL football at the time. So let's go about uh, getting the best talent we possibly can. And, and Barry Davis was just a classy player who joined the likes of um, of uh, our own Doug Wade from Geelong and, and a whole host of others in uh, creating that magnificent North Melbourne uh, premiership dynasty. Shows you how good this team is, though. If Peter Moore's the centre-half back, who's probably in the uh, the best half-dozen ruckman to, to play the game, uh, I remember at the time his moving from Collingwood to, to Melbourne was was quite a, uh, a talked-about moment, and uh, a lot of people were shocked that uh, Peter Moore had actually decided to, uh, to leave a, a successful club like Collingwood and go to a, well, a, a, a lesser successful club, shall we say, in, in the Melbourne Football Club. But certainly, oh, I think he actually played better football at the Melbourne Football Club than he did uh, at Collingwood. And over on the other half-back flank, what can you say about the great Alex Jeselenko that hasn't been said before? He was an absolute ornament to the game. He uh, he plied his craft beautifully at Carlton, had a bit of a fallout over there uh, with uh, uh, George Harris and the, uh, and the board over there in some ructions um, in the early 80s. And he found himself popping up at St Kilda and uh, captain the club there and... Uh, and was a great player for uh, for that club for for a number of years after that. But that is just a really classy halfback line, Gus. And you're spot on, Mark, about the resentment from Collingwood fans towards Peter Moore because I remember being at the first game that Peter Moore played 
against Collingwood when he was playing for Melbourne. And the banner, the Collingwood banner read, more filth. So there you have it. Um, the centre line we find dancing Dougie Hawkins, the great Ian Stewart, and the flip of the coin Stan Alves, which Wes Cusworth will explain what exactly that means. Well, let me just say that uh, Dougie Hawkins, I mean, Mark expressed the fact that there was a bit of shock when some of his players, he alluded to, um, had departed one club to go to another club. When Doug Hawkins left the Footscray Bulldogs, I think that only shocked the Bulldogs supporters, but pretty much shocked the the football world because he was just an absolute, um, he he was part of the furniture, wasn't he, at uh, the Western Oval? Mm. Obviously, uh, a massive move for Dougie Hawkins. Ian Stewart, what a legend of AFL, well, then VFL football, of course, with his uh, multiple Brownlow medals, of course, made the move from St Kilda to Richmond. And Stan Alves, well, you might have to help me out with that a little query that you actually just posed for me, but uh, or maybe someone else will. But um, I, I did get to know Stan at a personal level, and what a lovely, lovely man he is. His book, um, Sat Coach, is a cracker of a read, I might add. Um, he clearly left Melbourne with a view to some success and I was really pleased for him that he was able to attain that premiership success, albeit that uh, he was pictured post-game wearing a Collingwood jumper, which was a very, very sad indictment. And quite ironic, was because the reason why I mentioned about flip of a coin, because just like you, I've been privileged enough to have Stan as a good friend of mine and um, he tells a story that um, he, wanted, he got an offer from Collingwood, got an offer from North Melbourne, spoke to his wife, Judy, couldn't decide, and then at the end of the day just flipped the coin. It landed on North Melbourne. And fortuitously for him, as we know, the 77 grand final was a draw, but then the week later it was North Melbourne who, who were the premiers of 77. So he walked away with a premiership medallion. So amazing what a flip of the coin does. Sliding doors moment. Yes. And widely acknowledged as the best player on the ground in the drawn grand final. That's correct. Half forward line is a lot more contemporary and fresh in people's minds, I'm sure. When we look at Ben Cousins, uh, arguably one of the best centre-half forwards of all time in Wayne Carey, and Sam Mitchell on the other half forward flank. Uh, Tell us about it, Megan, because you've seen all these fellas at their best. I sure did, Gus, and this is possibly one of the most talented yet controversial lines that we would see in a team, I think. Um, We might leave Sam Mitchell out of the controversial bit, though. Um, But Ben Cousins, of course, captain West Coast from 2001 to 2005. He was a six-time All-Australian and a Brownlow medalist in 2005. Wayne Carey, as you said, in the opinion of some, one of the most skillful players of all time. He was North Melbourne captain from 93 to 2001 and All-Australian captain four times. Uh, So certainly deserving his place in the team there. And Sam Mitchell, uh, a great nemesis of the Geelong Football Club. Of course, he was a premiership captain in 2008, which many of us Geelong supporters would choose to forget about. Exactly, Megan. Now, the forward line that reeks again of talent, and these guys pretty much played in the same era. Len Thompson, Brownlow medalist from Collingwood, made the switch to South Melbourne. Doug Wade, as mentioned before, part of the 10-year rule that followed Barry Davis and John Rantel to the North's first premiership in 75. And Calvin Templeton, again, another link with the back line, he was part of the deal that saw Peter Moore and Calvin Templeton being called the Million Dollar Demons. He he was captain of the Doggies and went over to uh, the Melbourne Football Club in that same year. So, Anthony, tell us a little bit more about this trio. 
Well, the interesting thing about Kelvin Templeton, he won his Brownlow in 1980 when the Bulldogs finished second bottom on the ladder, which shows you just how good his season was that year under the coaching of Royce Hart, who controversially moved him out of full forward to centre-half forward in that particular season. Um, never reached the same heights with Melbourne due to, uh, to knee injuries. Um, Doug Wade, of course, many Geelong supporters had to suffer the indignity of the great Doug Wade leaving late in his career to pursue premiership honours at uh, North Melbourne. So there were a lot of duffel coats and jumper numbers being ripped to shreds back in 1972-73. And Len Thompson, a bit of a sad story, a a 14-year veteran at Collingwood, uh, multiple finals, four grand finals without tasting uh, victory. Um, and at the end of his career, he to prolong his career, he was shipped off to other clubs, uh, very much against his will. Um, but uh, he offered um, had some good service there at both South Melbourne and Fitzroy in the final couple of years of his career. He certainly did. And um, and when Lim was alive and being interviewed, he was he'd always lament on the fact that he never got to play in that 79 grand final. And a lot of Collingwood supporters who know their footy and know their club would say, geez, uh, the footy that Len Thompson was playing could have been the difference in that five point defeat. Now, if we thought this side couldn't get any better, well, it certainly can, Megan, because our ruck division is the only line that contains three Brownlow medalists in Gary Dempsey, Chris Judd and Gary Ablett Jr., well, just a few more Brownlows thrown in there for good measure, hey, Gus. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to see Gary Dempsey play, but he did captain uh, Footscray twice, 71 and 72, and then again later in his career from 77 to 78, and one of the highest games players ever. So an impressive record there for Gary. Chris Judd, certainly one of the best players in modern history, captain at both clubs, West Coast and Carlton. And, of course, he was involved in that famous swap for Josh Kennedy. Just a superb talent, Chris Judd. And our own Gary Ablett, very happy to have him back at the Cats. But he did leave Geelong to be the inaugural Gold Coast captain from 2011 to 2016, which he probably wouldn't have achieved at Geelong. But then, of course, he had uh, tremendous success at Geelong that he also didn't achieve at Gold Coast. So he's really done it all in his career now. He, he certainly has. And he is, if we look at this side, he's the only one in this side that became a captain at their second club rather than their first, if that makes sense. So, so while some were captain at both clubs, Gary was never a captain at Geelong first, but became, like you said, the inaugural captain of, of the Suns and then later left that club, which qualifies him for this team. Now, if we look at our bench, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very star-studded lineup as well for different reasons. Now, John Murphy... I think if John Murphy was playing for any other Melbourne side bar Fitzroy, he would be heralded in a lot greater light than what he is today. He's the father of Mark Murphy at Carlton. Greg Wells, just like Stan Alves, left Melbourne and to pursue a premiership with another team. And Mark Micken, um, he's the wild card of this team. And the reason why he's a wild card, well, Mark Brunger is going to explain that for us. Well, it's a fascinating one because uh, Mark Micken um, was uh, one of those players who made his debut as an AFL captain in his club's very first game of football. So, uh, of course, with the uh, the Brisbane Bears all those years ago, uh, Mark Micken started with them and then he found his way uh, across to, to Adelaide joining the, uh, the Crows. But... Uh, John Murphy's is one that um, you know is is one of the great names of of, of VFL football, and uh, 
He was made captain of Fitzroy back in 1973. He held that position until he left the club some four years later in 1977. Played 214 games in that time and won five Fitzroy club champions uh, across the half-forward and midfield. So he was a superstar before he went to North Melbourne, where in 1979 he actually played his first ever finals match, which is, uh, you know, after so many games, uh, you know, is a, a wonderful achievement. And Greg Wells was just a great player for, for the Melbourne Football Club, 224 games, 251 goals. Before he switched over to the Blues and, and never really uh, captured his best form there uh, over uh, three seasons, um, he played 43 games for the Blues um, and kicked 24 goals. But um, he was a member of their 1981 Premiership team at uh, Carlton, so uh, certainly um, was well worth the move from the MCG over to Princess Park. It's interesting that not all of these players jump ship of their own accord. Many of them were were uh, turfed out against their will, which shows you how disposable sometimes players can be. Greg Wells, for example, was approached by Carlton um, to see if he would like to play for them. When he expressed no desire to go to Carlton, he was told, I'm sorry, but the deal's already done. Yeah. And uh, he found himself the following week playing for the Blues um, was never never part of his plans. He was always a Melbourne man. And um, to show you how much he, he um, respect he had for his club, despite what happened, he returned there years later as an assistant coach. It's interesting, isn't it, in this in this day of, of AFL Players Association and uh, and you know free agency and all those sorts of things, is the the, the worm is actually turned now to the to the perspective where, you know, in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, the clubs were really in control of the players' destiny and could just swap them and trade them like cattle or sheep or livestock or anything like that. But but these days, the, the, the power is more in the AFL players' hand now to control their own destiny. So it's, it's interesting to see how things have changed over time. They certainly have. And just one more little trivia bite for everyone listening out there, which they can share, is... Uh, there are four players, Peter Moore, Ian Stewart, Chris Judd and Gary Ablett Jr., who all um, won a Brownlow at their second club as well. So there you go. This is a bit of trivia there. And the coach, Wes Cusworth, is none other than Ronald Dale Barassi, who is almost as big as the, the JFK assassination, that news, when it broke that he was leaving Melbourne to go to Carlton. Yeah, perhaps I overstated it a little bit when I suggested that Dougie's Hawkins news was as big as it was when you compare it to that of Ronald Barassi because uh, that was just absolutely huge, wasn't it? Ronald Dale Barassi, uh, such a fabulous achiever with, well, right throughout his football career, whether it be as a player or a coach or whatever, premierships and all sorts of accolades, uh, an absolutely outstanding contributor to the game. And it's just, I find it so fascinating. I mean, we all mallow as sports people as we get a little bit older, but uh, he used to be such a harsh man. But now I think he's just one of the uh, most um, congenial sort of blokes going around. It's lovely to hear him speak. Gus, uh, I, was just, I was just wondering, Gus, whether there might have been a, uh, a fourth spot on that interchange bench. And I know this is going to hurt each and every one of us uh, dearly when I say this, but any thought of uh, Lee Colbert sneaking into that team? Well, I did. I know it's breaking Megan's heart, but... Um, <laughs> thank, you, thank you for mentioning, Mark. I did nominate Lee. I was devastated when you left. my heart too, I might say, because I was a huge Lee Colbert fan and I was settling into him being a 300-plus a game player for Geelong and leading us for a long, long time. And 
I was, I was absolutely gobsmacked when that happens. But, you know, technically, Mark and Megan, I know, and I stand to be correct, but if you picked up a, any sort of AFL record right now, he's not listed as a captain. Correct. He never actually led Geelong in a in a in a match. Yep. So he was injured. Yes. Yes. Was, yes. So, so he didn't then, even though he was appointed by the club, he didn't actually play a game. Yes. And um, think of the egg I had. Well, it wasn't really egg on my face. I, I didn't know any better, but I just did this full a front page middle spread uh, story on why he loved being the Geelong captain, even though he was well. Even this is just before he got injured, and why he loved the opportunity at such a young age. And then six months later, he was he was gone. But yeah, that one, I think he he endeared all of us because of the way he played the game. And so many times we would have lamented then thinking, geez, what, how good would it have been to have, you know, Colbert in our team at his very best. But as we saw, the tie turned and he could have been a dual premiership captain, couldn't he? Mm. Could have been. Yeah. No, I think I think Colbert leaving was a, and, and Gary Ayres was a circuit breaker for the club. Yep. enabled them to have a fresh start. It enabled Cameron Mooney to play for Geelong. No Corey Enright too. No Cameron Mooney at Geelong. Yep. Um, it enabled us to get Bomber Thompson. It then gave us the opportunity to get rid of some players who were uh, recalcitrants and, you know, John Barnes and mm. Michael Mansfield and a few others were eased out of the club. It was, it was a circuit breaker. But also okay, they're getting you Corey Enright too, Anthony. Yes, we got Corey Enright as a result of, of that particular trade. And I think the third one was David Spriggs. It didn't quite work, but um, Mooney and Enright uh, repaid the club in spades. They certainly did. Okay, okay, Anthony, you win. <laughs> well, that wraps up our program for this week. This podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, along with being heard throughout Perth on Spot FM 91.3. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll catch you again next week.